Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And my guest with me today is Mr. Mark Owens. Now, Mark Owens is the best-selling author of Secrets of the Savannah, The Eye of the Elephant, and The Cry of the Kalahari, which details his experiences living and working in the unexplored wilds of Africa. Mark faced severe drought, violent storms, brush fires while there, and that's not even counting the dangers he faced from wild animals or human poachers. However, Mark isn't here with us today to talk about his experiences in Africa, but instead to discuss an even greater challenge, how he lived with and finally overcame his battle with chronic pain. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on Straight Shot Health Talk. It's a great pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for having, thank you for having me on. All right. So we, we kind of touched on this, and I don't want to presume too much because if you, I mean, I, as I was telling you just a second ago, going through your history, you faced some unbelievable challenges while you were living in Africa. But well, yes, I, I, I guess I did. I um, I lived in the, some of the most remote parts of Africa left, and including starting with the Kalahari Desert, in which um, my wife Delia and I were the only two people in an area the size of uh, Ireland, and um, other than a few roving bands of bushmen, and uh, it was so remote that um, the animals had never even seen human beings before, so they were incredibly curious about us and um, it led to many close encounters including sleeping with wild lions and having wild lions uh, sniff our sleeping bags while they after invading our tent and and those sorts of things and um, it was a very high risk existence in in very remote areas I, I was a pilot I flew aircraft including helicopters and I engaged poacher bands and I was charged by lions and elephants and leopards and never actually suffered a scratch and then i returned to idaho 23 years later and actually um suddenly found that my life was about to change as well and that um it really was the the entry into the vortex as as it's called of chronic pain and uh and it all started um with a horseback ride one afternoon would you like to hear more absolutely absolutely <laughs> and, and just for a time frame here can you give us you know kind of set the scene up when what what when did that happen? What year was that when you were out on that horse uh, riding in the mountain? Uh, it was in um, actually in uh, 2006, J- July 31st of 2006. I had um, grabbed a friend of mine, and we loaded a couple of my horses, and we rode high up in the Cabinet Mountains above Libby, Montana, looking for grizzly bears. Uh, I'm, a, of course, a field biologist, so, and I was working with uh, Idaho Fish and Game and, and other um, not NGO groups to help recover the grizzly bear population in northern Idaho. And um, so I was looking for, for signs of grizzlies and hopefully actually to spot a grizzly that day. And we rode high up in the mountains above Libby, and we were coming out at dark, actually. And um, I was on a horse I called Whiskey at the time. And uh, Whiskey was a little cantankerous at times. And for some reason, he got into a snit that night. And, um, and uh, we were way up and in dark and it was uh, 
suddenly he just dropped his head and, and took off down the mountain, stripped the reins out of my hand and started bucking and increasing speed. And um, I stayed on for four bucks. And as I came off, I thought, boy, this is going to hurt. And uh, I didn't really have any idea how bad, but um, as I hit the ground, um, actually I didn't hit the ground. I landed across a log and it collapsed my chest on the left side, broke all my ribs, uh, actually shoved some of my ribs almost out of my chest wall and uh, collapsed my lung, broke my back in two places, which I felt felt go at the time and actually hurt it when I hit the ground. And uh, so suddenly uh, that was that was my entry into the vortex of chronic pain. And uh, it wasn't polite, but it was very profound. <laughs> <laughs> now, it, and, it's, uh, it's unbelievable yeah. that you were you were conscious during this time. Well, actually, it surprised me as well. I've never experienced pain that exquisite. <laughs> it was just it was um, I. I can't even begin to describe it. It was all-consuming. It was like a blinding white light, and uh, and um, I felt found myself on the ground. And Sam, my buddy, ran up to me. Said, "What can I do?" And I said, "You just got to get out and get help as fast as you can." Yeah. And, how far um, away from civilization were we, you he, at this time? Pardon me. I'm sorry. How far away from you for, from civilization were you were when this happened? Well, I, best to tell it in time. It was a, a good two and a half, three hour ride out to the trailhead from where we were, and then uh, another oh half hour, forty five minute drive to to Libby. Uh, from there, I guess uh, maybe not quite that long, half an hour. Um, but um, it was very rugged and. Uh, uh, Sam left, and uh, my horse had run off with all my emergency gear, warm clothes and matches and everything. And uh, and uh, I was basically dressed in, in um, jeans and a T-shirt, and Sam left me a tiny little jacket. Sam's a small man. He left me a little <laughs> uh, Lee jacket, cotton Lee jacket, but I could never keep it on my back. Anyway, I spent the night on the mountain, um, made, and I made a survival, a series of of problem-solving uh, events, and uh, the first thing I had to do was keep my myself from going into shock. So I crawled downhill a little bit off the trail, and um, so that the blood didn't would you know stay in my head. And um, and then I got caught in a brush pile that started to uh, actually restrict uh, blood flow to my head, and. I started to bleed out inside, so I had to find a way to turn myself around without severing my spinal cord, and that was another challenge. And and then the cold began to seep in. It was 36 to 38 degrees up there that night, and uh, so I was scattering leaf, leaves and branches and things on top of my back to try to retard the loss of heat. And and all the while, of course, I was in blinding pain and, um, and actually couldn't really pick my head up. It was so bad, uh, and um, when I picked my head up, I felt the pain in my chest even worse. And um, and uh, and the funny thing is, I mean, I I kept saying, well, if I die up here, I'll have had a good life. And anyway, but um, I actually found some humor in the whole situation. When in, I'd been up there probably three or four hours alone, and and I it was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing, and uh, uh, it was dark. And um, and I heard chomp, 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 smack, smack. I thought, oh, great. There was a bear, and um, for all I know, a grizzly. It might have been a black bear, but I happened to have landed in a huckleberry patch, and the bear was <laughs> very near me <laughs> eating huckleberries. <laughs> and I thought, 
Oh my, I've been lying here making sounds like a wounded snowshoe hare for hours. I hope he doesn't decide to have a <laughs> make a snack out of me. But about the time I had that thought, I I heard the sound I heard a thumping coming through the the litter on the forest floor uh under my ear and um uh, it really is true that uh, as as the old Lone Ranger movies suggested <laughs> that you can hear a horse coming for quite a ways um uh under by putting your ear to the ground and I heard Sam coming back with blankets uh for at least 5 or 10 minutes before he actually showed up and uh Oh, it's a long, long, long story, but he first rode past me in the dark, and I happened to have a little flashlight in my pocket, and I couldn't call out to him, and I signaled with a light, and he finally found me down the trail, off the trail, rather, below the trail, and uh, covered me with blankets, and search and rescue from Libby with a doctor arrived oh, about two hours after that, and uh, they shot me up with uh, fentanyl and stuffed me in a warm bag with some water bottles and strapped me to a litter and hiked me for four and a half hours up the mountain to a high alpine meadow where at uh, sunrise in the morning I, a helicopter came and took me to Kalispell Regional Medical Center in Montana. And uh, there I had an emergency surgery and they fused my back. Um, I had a, a burst fracture of... of uh, thoracic 12 and another fracture of thoracic 8 and so they fused me from my uh, thoracic um, 8 basically to L lumbar 2 and uh, that was my the beginning of chronic pain for me oh my goodness so you were up on the, I mean, you have, traumatic accident you're on this mountainside you basically I, I have to say, I just loved how you broke that down into a series of problems that you're, you know, first I'm going to figure out what I need to do next. How am I going to adjust with the cold? What am I going to do to keep from passing out? I mean, it's it's amazing, but you're up there alone for God knows how many hours. And about you, six hours. About mm -hmm. six six hours there. Um, I, I just, just unbelievable. So you've already undergone this extraordinarily traumatic event. And you you thought you were gonna die, but you didn't. Now you're back in civilization. So what started next? What was the next stage of the well, story? The I guess the next thing was I began to realize how my world had suddenly shrunk around me, and uh, that became a major mental challenge for me. Um, I mean the pain the pain was otherworldly for quite a while after my surgery and because especially because of my broken ribs as well as my back and all the contusions in my body and everything from having hit the ground so hard and um and um it, it um yeah for the sort of the first two months i i lived with pain levels that were anywhere from six to ten and um and almost constant. And I, of course, gobbled narcotics, Norco, Neuron, Ultram, two different muscle relaxers, two different sleep aids, and a lot of others I can't even recall. And actually, one night I took seven different prescription drugs and for pain and sleep and surprised everybody by surviving that. And um, I have to say that not one physician ever warned me about addiction to opiates. Uh, that was interesting in retrospect. And... Uh, um, they, um, um, 
it, it it became that became a secondary problem as the addiction to the to the opiates I was taking. But but mainly the overriding thing for me initially was the seeping into my consciousness that my world was shrinking around me, and the thought, the wonder about whether I would ever be able to even approach being the person I was. I was always very physical. I'm a scuba diver. I'm a pilot. I'm a you know, a hiker and a horseback rider and a kayaker and a whole bunch of other things. And I wondered how much of that I would ever get back to. And that's, that's quite a, quite a thing to have to face along with the pain. And, um, and the other thing that happens, uh, is first of all, I mean, when we have to realize that suffering from chronic pain is, it's, it's something that's all-consuming, and it changes life for for one utterly, um, and not just for, for for the person suffering pain. It it changes for everybody around you as well, your family and friends, and and um, at first, of course, everybody's very concerned about you, and they're always asking, "How's your back? How's your pain?" and so forth, and and um, you end up telling them and being honest. But that, there's a saturation point that your family and friends reach which they will continue to ask how you're doing, but they really don't want to hear mm-hmm. because it's painful for them to know that you're still in pain. So I began to say, oh, well, um, my back's behind me if they'd ask about my back or my pain's not so much or I'd even, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm feeling fine, you know, or something like that. But um, it's a social problem as well as a physical problem and a mental problem. So you, you not and, only uh, have the isolation where you're trying to you know, you already think part of your, your world is over. I mean, again, you, you as a pilot, a scuba diver, outdoorsman, thinking that you're not going to do that. But then you also begin to lose the social network that you had before your injury. Well, you do because, um, you know, after, oh, maybe three months or four months after my accident, I began to go out or try to go out to restaurants with friends or to homes. And uh, I would um, spend... I could not stand or sit down or remain motionless for any length of time, so I would have to get up and get down and get up and get down and move, and just sitting on a chair was extremely painful. And when I would, I several times when I would at a, was at a restaurant or at home, I tried to stand up, I would get these spasms in my legs, and uh, they literally sprawled me across the dinner table and scattering flatware and dishes and embarrassing myself and everybody else and people would gasp and turn away and it just it was not fun and and I think people began to over time they they the invitations became fewer because people were afraid to see that again and again and um, and I didn't want to go out I didn't want to ex- I didn't want to expose anybody else to that so not only does your physical world shrink, your social world shrinks as well. And not because anybody's being inconsiderate or mean-spirited. They just It's just painful to watch somebody in that kind of pain. So that was, that was a very bitter a, a, a pill to swallow for me as well. Now, how long did that last? About um, almost a year, actually. Um, that my spasms lasted. Well, actually, I guess they began to improve about eight months after my surgery. Um, but 
I did still have some spasming up to a year after the surgery. But I gradually improved, and, and as I improved, I realized my, my secondary issue was now that I was hooked on all these drugs that I was taking. And, um, and um, I didn't like that, and I, I never gobbled them up. I always took the minimum, but what we're never told is, as victims of chronic pain is that the only pain that, the only um, drugs that really address pain as intense as acute chronic pain is are you know opiate based drugs narcotics and uh you will get hooked on those drugs trust me if you have acute chronic pain for long enough and take those drugs long enough you will get you will become addicted to them and i did and as soon as i realized it i realized i didn't i didn't want to be there and so i started taking fewer and fewer and then i finally just went cold turkey and um and uh, I spent a week without one moment of sleep and lying in bed with cold sweats and jitters and grinding my teeth and um, until I finally broke my dependency on on uh, Ultram, Norco, and, and the other drugs. So that that's almost as much of a challenge as, as enduring the pain and, and healing from the original um, accident. Uh, and I, it was something I wasn't prepared to going in, prepared for going in. Yeah, I think, uh, and that's unfortunate. We really have done a bad job uh, talking about that. And uh, I think I've had some past episodes discussing a little bit about well, how I, pharma has, uh-huh. has done that. I mean, a lot of it has just been bad education from both the population as well as physicians. Yes, yes. Well, and I think there's a... I think there's a, a hesitancy sometimes to reveal that to a patient because what alternative is there? You have to. The physician is faced with the problem of trying to advise the the, the the patient on how to and equip the patient on how to control that intense pain and so that he or she can achieve some level of functioning. And um, and um, they they don't want to have to tell you that you're going to get hooked because there's nothing else you can can do. I mean, <laughs> you have to take those things to survive. I'm talking about pain that makes you want to kill yourself. And um, I actually became suicidal a couple of times during my recovery. And um, the first accident was only the beginning. I had to then have another surgery um, um, in 2010, four years after my accident, because the steel they had put in my back, well, about 11 and a half inch long ladder of titanium steel began to pile drive the healthy vertebra below that was not fused um, in my spine. Uh, that would be lumbar three until it was such a wreck that I finally found my way to a surgeon in California who was brilliant. Um, and he fused me uh, L2 to L3, but using a technique that requires that you stay away from anti-inflammatory drugs to for the fusion to take and heal. And if you can't take drugs to control inflammation, you can only imagine how bad the pain is. And that pain was worse than the pain I suffered in my accident. And it was more my original accident. And it was more constant and consistent and unrelenting than the pain that I had the first time around. And... Um, and I was back on all the heavy drugs again and uh, to try to survive that. And so um, 
Yeah, it just went, yes, it just went on and on. Um, I have to just describe what it's like, if, if I may, Kevin, to live with that kind of pain. is It's like a monkey on your upper back and your lower neck. I mean, I I couldn't stand up straight for very long. Uh, my gait was stiff and shambling. I walked like an automaton. And uh, and it's always with you. I the first I used to dread going to sleep because I knew when I woke up, if I could sleep, I knew when I woke up, the first thing I would that would enter my consciousness would be a stabbing pain. And so I'd be literally afraid to go to sleep. And and that, so that led to insomnia. And then I'd usually fall asleep for maybe two or three hours late in the night or early in the morning. And as soon as I'd open my eyes, um, I would feel this intense pain in my lower back. And the next thing I would suffer would be a fear that I was going to have to move my legs. Um, because there would be another major jolt of pain when I did. And so I would usually lie there awake in the morning for several minutes um, during the pain in my lower back but afraid to move my legs. And then slowly I would um, move my legs and and endure that pain. And then how do you get up and put weight on your spine? Well, I would work my legs off the bed, roll over on my stomach, work my legs off the bed at my hips, and... uh, let my feet touch the floor, and then slowly um, put weight on my feet until I could stand up, and the pain would be intense. And and it's it's it be the thing about chronic pain, acute chronic pain, is that it def- begins to define who you are and how you interact with the world and everything you do. Everything you do, it's never out of your mind. You if you're going to reach for something, it's there. It's warning you. Don't do that. If you're going to take a step, be careful how you step and how long that step is. And and um, if you're going to reach out and shake somebody's hand, you think about it. And if you're going to, if somebody asks you to dinner, how am I going to embarrass myself? And and so it's um, as I said, it's it's a bit like a monkey that just lives on your back and it's never ever out of your mind, not not even for a minute. So. A lot of what I'm hearing kind of between the lines, there's a lot of fear. I mean, you're going to bed and you're afraid to wake up because you're you're fearful of the pain that's going to be there. You're fearful of moving because of uh, expecting the pain to to start when you move. Is is that fair to say? Absolutely fair. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. And the, the other thing is the maintenance that's required to keep your body so that it functions at all is remarkable. I mean, two or three times each day I... I hung. I would hang upside down on an inversion bed. I did yoga. I stretched. I laid flat on the floor with my feet up. I laid across the football, and you know I did a, a lot of other maintenance activities so that I could just function at perhaps at best 65% of what I had functioned in my former life. And uh, and then there's the time of all that conditioning takes. And by the time I finished all that, there wasn't a heck of a lot of time left to do anything else during the day. Um, but still, I mean, the pain was like a leech. It was, it was never out of my mind. And, uh, and, uh, and so I couldn't pursue my career as a writer or a pure biologist and, and, um, you know, things just kept getting worse actually, um, in fits and starts. And, um, anyway, I, I, um, I guess that's, that's sort of the way it is to live with chronic pain. It's, it's just um, it's like a leech on your leg or a monkey on your back all the time. 
Yeah, sucking the life. It's your third partner in marriage. It's whatever. Yes. Well, and that definitely puts some strain, I would assume, on a relationship for sure. Uh, very definitely. It very definitely it does. And uh, you know, you when you're in chronic pain, you're often irritable, and you're you find yourself projecting and making all sorts of mistakes with your partner and. And uh, you too too seldom remember that this is hard on them too, and many in many ways harder on them than it is on you. And um, and then of course uh, you make other mistakes. I finally reached a point where I could drive again and um, and um, try to get back to a normal life. And this is after my second surgery in 2010. And um, and then I was. And it usually takes about two years, really, to heal from one of these back surgeries. And and um, after my 2010 surgery, I was the last actually was in November of 2013. I was lacking sleep. I had been on taking sleep aids and muscle relaxers for the pain, the continuing pain in my back. And as a result, I drove my truck off the road and and um, totally destroyed it. And um, uh, actually on my way to an eye appointment in Salt Lake City at the time and uh, broke my back again. Uh, this time, a uh, compression fracture of, of uh, lumbar, what was it, four. And um, so that began the cycle of pain yet again. And um, this last, Spring of last year, my lower, uh, actually this year, my lower back pain was so bad I began having nerve spasms that dumped me on the floor and or humiliate me in public. And I would find myself hobbling from one piece of furniture to the next, holding on to keep from falling down. And um, and I was living with pain levels that were barely, I mean, I was, they were up to level 10 many times a day, uh, max. And... Um, I really thought my life was over, and again, I, I flirted with suicide, and um, and I tried epidurals and pain blocks and uh, all sorts of things, uh, acupuncture and chiropractic and everything I could think of, um, hot tubs and you name it, I tried it. And um, I was um, actually suicidal, literally. I, did, I, I knew I could not live with that pain. And uh, so I went to see another orthopedic surgeon um, and uh, out of uh, Sacred Heart in uh, Spokane. And uh, he came in very confident to his office that day. And he said, well, you, your back is a mess. And he said, uh, you really don't have any good options. And he said, I could recommend several things to do that would be lesser. But he said, what you need is more. And what I'm here to offer you is what I call the blue plate special. And he described a, uh, a surgery that would open me up and size me from my sternum all the way to my pelvis. And um, they were going to remove all the steel in my back. They were going to break my back in two places and straighten it and fuse it and, and uh, clean out the uh, calcium deposits, deposits in my spinal column and then the foramina of my L4 and L5, and and um, yeah, it was uh, yeah, there were going to be two surgeons operating on me for eight hours to two days, and um, he said these aren't this is not a good option, but he said it's the only one you have left, and um, 
I just, I, my jaw was just hanging. I just, and I would, but I was at the same time, I almost felt thankful that someone was offering to fillet me like a salmon because I felt that's what was needed. If that what was needed to give me any chance of life, then, then I would take it. And, uh, but I was still very dismayed at what I was going to have to endure to, to get that opportunity. So can, can I ask you a quick question there? So sure. you, you would, this, this was in, uh, around May or June of 2014. Uh, y- yes. Okay. Yes. And uh-huh. a- at that time, you had the severe pain, you were still having the spasms, but you could still, you were still able to walk even though it was painful? Yes, I could walk, but I had to be careful um, to have something near me. If I felt a spasm coming, I would grab the table or a chair or something. But I was, I was very close to being totally disabled by the time I took the next step. Okay, but it was the, the pain was the predominant thing more than anything. It wasn't weakness. It was the the absolute pain that they were talking about operating for. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, but I left his office and I thought, I just don't know if I can go through that again. I I knew what recovery was going to mean and the pain was going to be after I had the surgery. And even if it improved, it was likely to come back. Anyway, the I had luckily, fortunately, scheduled an appointment with. Um, uh, an orthopedic surgeon in Seattle to get a second opinion at uh, at Swedish Medical Center, and um, and that's where I met Dr. David Hanscom. And Dr. Hanscom walked into his office and he said, "Well, I've looked at your images," and he said, uh, "I'm not going to recommend you for surgery." And I said, "What? <laughs> <laughs> what? You're not going to recommend? But I have to be cut. <laughs> I need to be cut in order to get better." And he you got said, the blue no. plate he special said, coming, right? Yeah, I got what I wanted to scream at him. What about the blue plate special? <laughs> but I and I did say I just spoke to the surgeon two days ago who said I have to have this, 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 and this done. And he said, "Well, he said um, I can't recommend that." He said, um, "I don't do I don't do." Uh, uh, spinal fusions anymore on a patient unless I know there's a one-to-one correspondence between some dysfunction in the spine and uh, the chronic pain that person is suffering. And he said, frankly, I've looked at your images and he said, your spine is, is uh, yeah, you, you've had some damage and you're, you know, getting on in years. <laughs> so there's some aging going on there. But he said, Rel- your spine is relatively stable and I see no one-to-one correspondence between anything that's going on in your spine and and uh, the pain you're having. And I said, well, what's going on then? And he said, well, I think you're a victim of what we call mind-body syndrome. And I said, mind-body syndrome, what's that? And he said, well, anyone who's suffered acute chronic pain for long enough, for, for two months roughly, he said, and this is what research shows, neuro, neuroscience studies show, that that person's brain suddenly rewires itself to produce its own pain independent of the former um, fracture or dysfunction that your spine suffered. And um, he said, so I think that's what's going on with you. And he said, anything in your life that produces stress, whether it's a fight with your wife or financial difficulties or or anything, any stressor, he said, can force, the, can cause the brain to elicit its own 
pain signals. And he said at two months when a chronic pain survey, he says what happens is that um, at first the brain registers the pain in one center, but at about two months there's, there's a wildfire of pain that breaks out and spreads across your brain and lodges in five other centers of the brain. And he said that quickly as the brain rewires itself center to center until all those are linked. And he said then any trauma in your life can set off an endogenous pain signal that your brain then picks up itself and you hurt. And it's, he said it's rather like the phantom limb, limb syndrome where someone's limb is amputated and yet they still feel the pain that that limb was giving them when it was there uh, before it was amputated. So, And so uh, he said, what I'm pioneering, he said, I quit doing fusion surgeries about 12 years ago um, because he said only 20 to 30 percent of them are successful anyway. And he said, they, as you know, he said they cause damage to the healthy part of your spine if, if you have search steel implants, uh, constructs put in your back. And um, he said, uh, but he said, I'm pioneering with other doctors in my field a new way of, of addressing chronic pain. And uh, he said, I've written a book about it. Here it is. And um, have a look at it. And he said, one of the first things you can do is something we call negative writing. And he said, it's based on uh, what we're offering here is a program based on neuroplasticity. That is, you, using certain techniques to rewire your brain around the pain centers that have been laid down by acute chronic pain over time. Those are the pain centers in your brain I'm talking about. And, uh, and he said uh, that one of the most effective tools to do that is something we call negative writing. Well, I'd never even heard of it. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you simply carry a pad in your pocket and a pencil and and he said, uh, for 15 to 30 minutes in the morning and 15 to 30 minutes at night, you, if you have negative thoughts, whatever negative thoughts come through your mind, he said, you write them longhand on a piece of paper as graphically as you using expletives or whatever else. If you're self-critical, you write down the thought that is self-critical. If you are mad at someone else, you write down, I'm mad at so-and-so for such and such a reason, and she or he is an SOB or whatever, <laughs> and the more graphic, the better. And he said, immediately you tear it out of your notebook, tear it into little pieces and throw it away. And he said, we know from neuroscience studies that that, that process actually separates that thought from your brain and leads to a lessening of tension. And um, he said, you have to understand your central nervous system be has been tuned to be hypersensitized by acute chronic pain and it's living in a state of hypersensitivity and you have to we have to relax that first and foremost and anyway um, he's described the need for seven to eight hours of good sleep a night that's part of the fix um, and uh, so he said get started with uh, with uh, the negative writing see if it, he said a lot of people have remarkable turnarounds right away with that and um, he said, you may or may not, but it's, he said, you need to, you may want to give it a try. And I thought, and I said, well, why would I want to be filleted like a fish when all I can, it, 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 as an alternative, I can just write down some negative thoughts <laughs> on a piece of paper. So I decided to defer the surgery that was described as a blue plate special and to try David's approach. And, um, and, uh, um, I walked out of his office thinking this is snake oil. Uh, this is, 
and he he said he said you know I'm I'm giving a pain workshop in Rhinebeck, New York, at the Omega Center there. In three weeks, you might want to think about coming to that. And I, anyway, I walked out of the office and I just shook my head, thinking, "This is this is crazy. This can't possibly fix what's causing all this acute pain with me." But that night in the hotel room, be, um, I tried negative writing for the first time, and the next morning I woke up and expecting the re- usual shot of pain in my lower back, and and uh, it. It was there, but it was more like a dull ache than a, an intense pain, and I thought, hmm, that's curious. And I didn't even relate it to negative writing. I, I didn't even remember. I'd done it the night before. <laughs> and I was so skeptical, I knew it wasn't something I was looking for. You know, it wasn't a placebo effect. And uh, anyway, I, I thought, well, I'll try it again tonight. So I did I did sit for 15 or 30 minutes that night. I did it again, and the next day it was better. And Kevin... By the end of the second day, my pain was 80% reduced, and it's now been four-plus months since I left David's office, and I have been using negative writing, active meditation, where you put yourself into a sort of a, a meditative state, and you think positive thoughts, and you imagine your life as you'd like it to be without pain and so forth, and I do stretches and yoga, and I still use my my um, inversion bed and my football and a whole bunch of other tools at home. But I am, as I sit here and speak, I have not had one single spasm since I left David's office four months plus months ago. And my pain is, I would say, 92. Sometimes I have no pain at all. Um, but usually it's at least 90% diminished. And on no medications? I take... I you take two Tylenol a day, sometimes twice a day, but usually just once a day now. Once a, every 24 hours, I mean, <laughs> and that's all. I'm not on any narcotics um, or any analgesics that are opiate deri- derivatives or anything like that. And all I can say is I can still barely believe that I'm actually saying this to you because it still sounds <laughs> like snake oil. <laughs> but my life has changed. Um, there are many things I can't do, of course, um, but I can do a lot more than I did before um, I got before these pain levels were reduced. And my back still warns me if I'm doing something I shouldn't, and sometimes it ambushes me if I've done something I shouldn't, and it doesn't register it right away. It'll register it later, but but I'm still <clears throat> uh, compared to where I was before. I'm virtually pain-free much of the time. Yeah, and that's it's absolutely remarkable. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that you, this was done without surgeries. Because as you well know, surgery often has horrible pain afterward. Oftentimes people don't get better or the pain doesn't go away after the surgery is done. Uh, and in this situation, it was three days of writing, which, I, which, is, which is phenomenal, by the way. But, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Oh I, no, go ahead. I was gonna. I don't mean to interrupt you. Well, I, as I said, I've, I'm a, as scientists, we're trained to be skeptical, and uh, so it's, I didn't expect this to work. I really didn't, and and uh, you know, I thought maybe my recovery was a product of my imagination, but um, since then I've been challenged, and over the course of the, these interceding months, I've been challenged repeatedly with stressful situation that I 
that I've um, um, that have brought back my pain and 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 once almost a spasm, but not quite. But using negative writing and active meditation, improving my sleep and exercise and recreation, um, I've easily brought myself back from the abyss of chronic pain every time that that's happened. And uh, I guess I I guess what I would say as as um, a semi layperson here is that we may uh, I, I think we probably know a whole lot less about why this works than it do, than that it does. I mean, neuroscience is is not actually catching up to what Native Americans and African tribal people have known for eons, and that is that the mind is a powerful generator for good or for ill, and depending on what we feed it and uh, how we treat it in other ways. And uh, there are, of course, historical accounts of uh, tribal people in Africa and the, and the United States and or in um, North America who prepared themselves for the pain of battle and especially being captured and tortured by putting themselves in a meditative state and using the mind to insulate themselves against the pain of battle and the pain of torture. And uh, these are well documented. And so it's it shouldn't surprise us so much, maybe, that these techniques work. No, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. And I think um, a lot of it has to do with, with the nature of pain itself. I mean, people... People forget, and physicians forget this, and I think I have talked to you about that. I mean, I was actually fellowship trained in pain medicine, and we learned uh -huh. these definitions about pain, that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience, and we kind of throw that yeah. around, but we don't think about what that means, because what it really means yeah. is a pain experience, is it's completely generated in your brain. You may have a nerve yeah. impulse from the body, but it takes the brain to right. take that information and construct what pain is. That's right. So that's right. And it, in the absence of an external stimulus, it can it can gen up pain on its own. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we have more and more data showing that, especially when we look at things that are in the chronic nature. You know, pain that has been over, you know, present beyond three month mark. We can generate yes. pain, and we and you feel it in your body. In fact, there's some very interesting studies that change uh, with chronic pain. That if we change your emotional state and we generate feelings of anger and particularly repressed anger, uh, we can yes. induce muscular spasm in your back simply by changing yes. that, that state. So, yes, yes. Well, one of the things I've learned in reading about all this is that often uh, people. Uh, People who are abused uh, as children often uh, have uh, a spot of chronic pain in their lower back uh, that is a function of that early abuse. And it can be triggered by the experience that reminds a person of the setting in which he or she was abused as a child. And uh, I've known people who are abused now who have uh, pain in a particular spot in their lower back, and uh, and now I've read that that's actually quite common um, as a function of being abused as a child. That is common to adults who've suffered that abuse as a child. No, absolutely. So, now it's a it's a huge risk factor for for people to develop chronic pain is is a history of abuse as a child. Now, it also when I say that, I want to also put it. it obviously, doesn't mean you're trapped to have chronic pain, and like right. You know, that's I think the other important thing that we say is you may at risk of developing it, but it does not mean that you are trapped in it. And uh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, just like absolutely. 
just like your story here, you know, you know, from 2006 until literally 2014, living in severe, horrible, chronic pain, and yet you have almost had, you know, 90 to 100 percent resolution of pain is is absolutely phenomenal. It, it is, and I think, uh, I mean, I've had many people ask me, well, how 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 did you how did you endure this? How did you come out the other side? And I think, I think. One of the things that after you suddenly realize that your world is shrinking in on you because of pain and it's limiting you in so many ways, the trick is, and, and I'm not even sure how this works, but uh, you probably know better than I do, Kevin, but um, the trick is to focus on what you can do. Remind, constantly use your mind to focus on what's still possible instead of what is impossible. And to believe that there is a way out of this somehow, and um, uh, that is really key. And um, also, you can enlist the help of your friends by by politely explaining to them, you know, uh, I really appreciate your concern for me, but uh, if you don't mind, let's let's uh, focus on 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 something else to talk about besides my back or my my pain or whatever, because every time you go through a description of your pain to mm-hmm. to your friend, not only does it eventually alienate them, but it also reinforces in your brain that you have that pain. And so you're much more likely, I think, to continue a, a history of that pain if you're constantly talking and thinking about it. Oh, so absolutely. I, uh-huh. <laughs> absolutely. I totally agree. And it, mm-hmm. it just brings up, uh, I just have to ask you, how often were you ever told that you need to maintain a pain journal? Uh, yes, okay. yes, and I, I, I have done that. Mm-hmm. So, so knowing what you do now about neuroplasticity and how the brain can remodel and and change its focus onto whatever it, your your conscious mind is focusing on, what what does does that make sense to you still? Or oh, absolutely. And I mean, um, I think the thing I've learned from this, one of the things I've learned is that. First of all, you know, I was told, oh, your back only has so many more bends and you um, you shouldn't pick up anything that weighs more than five pounds or ten pounds. And my my father was was uh, always came back to came back to has come back to me. And what he said to me when I was a child, quite, quite young. uh, And I've used that over and over. He said, don't ever let anyone tell you that you cannot do something. And I just, by extension, have added because you're disabled. And I was, frankly, disabled. Uh, and I think the trick is to constantly explore life or experiences that reward you for being active and engaged and for what you still can do. And I know that that this is not news to anybody who's been disabled uh, for any length of time. They have to do that. And it's But it's something that each one of us has to discover on our journey through acute chronic pain is that you have to um, remind yourself that you can do things, that you still can do things, and you will surprise yourself at how much you can do if you just deny that you're truly disabled or that you're you're limited in some way. Absolutely. Well, you focus on your strengths and... and uh, yes. And I also like that is, is you focus on what, just like you said, focus on what you can do, not what you can't do, and rather than spend you know, huge amounts of time saying, why me, when something happens, is really to say, what next? This has happened, what will I do next? 
Well, it's a matter of denying uh, that you're a victim. Yes. You can be a victim or you can decide not to be a victim. And that's really what it's all about. And I learned that from Dr. Hanscom and uh, and in his uh, pain workshop in uh, in Rhinebeck. And uh, it's it's also a matter of forgiveness. You have to you have to forgive yourself for a variety of things, um, for how you treat others when you're in pain, and how you how you limit yourself when you're in pain. You have to forgive yourself your tendencies to do those things. But not just that, you then have to plot a course around that behavior and uh, be conscious of it first and foremost. And if you can forgive yourself, then it's much more easy to forgive other people for things that, that they've wittingly or unwittingly done to you that have caused you pain. And in adopting this program that uh, that David uh, has outlined to me and and uh, his lovely wife Babs and others, is um, is it's a whole... Uh, it's a remake of your whole personality in so many ways. Um, I'm a much more positive person than I was, and um, I'm more optimistic. And um, I, and I'm I won't say that I've been out of this long enough to have realized all the benefits, but I feel myself getting stronger, more positive, more capable, uh, and everything than I have been for the last eight years when I've been basically uh, on a um, <laughs> on a rack being tortured by this chronic pain. But what a revelation to learn that it comes from your mind. If it comes from your mind, you know you can then fix it somehow. If it's if it's something that's structural that can't be fixed, that's a whole, without surgery, that's a different ballgame. But so much of the pain that, that we suffer is pain that we can wire around with techniques that involve neuroplasticity and they are very simple things like negative writing and journal keeping and yoga and just simply um, simply programming more uh, um, activity uh, that is um, sorry recreation in your life having fun instead of being type A driven all the time um, all of those things uh, are very important it's a, it's a holistic approach that and addressing chronic pain yeah. that yeah know, no a a absolutely that you and others are describing <laughs> well and and there's a there's a big difference is because what's typically talked about in the medical community when it comes to chronic pain is chronic pain management and i have some more interviews coming up um one with uh, dr david schechter and there was a key point in that interview where we we talked about that there's a difference between managing pain where there's expectations it won't get better versus curing pain. And what we're really talking about, and particularly what you've experienced, is is really it's curing pain. It is no longer being trapped yeah. in it. It is not a question of management anymore. It's a question right. of, of refocusing yourself and viewing yeah. a new history, for, or actually a new future for you, rather than being trapped into a past. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I'm sitting here. I've been sitting. How long have we been talking? I couldn't even have considered... Four months ago, I couldn't have considered doing this interview to start with, and I because I couldn't have sat long enough, and uh, and um, I wouldn't have been aware enough, and I was in a fog of pain and drugs, and and um, that's all gone. It's all gone. I'm sitting here perfectly comfortable in a chair, a straight back chair at a table, and um, not feeling any pain, and I think that is just. I, I still think it's snake oil, Kevin. 
But, but a little but better than the blue plate special. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for you, Doctor. Sure. What is the difference between uh, placebo effect and and this this mind body approach? You know, it, that's a tough one because there's there's some significant data on placebo has greater effects than we realize and more effects mm -hmm. often in most I shouldn't say most, but in plenty of medical therapies than we realize as well. Uh, the big distinguisher, I think, is a lot of times what you find with placebo, people are still not there. You, you know, what you're describing is an active, engaged lifestyle where you are taking control and you are no longer being the victim. You are doing something for yourself. And with right. a placebo, if you're taking a placebo pill, there's still this external uh, device. There's something that you were believing into this pill or therapy or whatever the case may be. And placebo effects in that situation, they seem to only last limited time, like four to six weeks is what people generally see with that. Uh-huh, yes. You know, yes. It's, so it's a, little, yes. it's a little bit different. And I think that's what, we, as I said, we see that a lot in, in, uh, in a lot, as I said, a lot of standard medical therapies, you'll see people take a pill or have an injection, and how long do they last? Four to six right. weeks. Right, right, so. right. We, yes, yes, I think so. And I think the other test is that, and I've <laughs> been looking at this with a, a cocked eye for a while, um, but what I really began to be a believer was when I would relapse, as you inevitably do when you have acute chronic pain, you will, you will relapse to some extent. But once you have these tools uh, like uh, journal writing and so forth at your fingertips, uh, you can bring yourself out of it. Uh, much quickly. I had an emotional meltdown with a close friend of mine uh, a few weeks ago, and I woke up the next morning, and I my back was really hurting, and um, and uh, to the point where I thought I might have a spasm again. And I just I did some belly breathing, I did some negative writing or journal writing, I did um, some active meditation, and with two uh, within two hours that pain was gone. One of the things I did that I found most effective was I imagined a bunch of little Pac-Men eating that pain in my lower left back. And um, and by the end of two hours, it was gone completely. Fancy. It wasn't even a vestige of it. That, it it's it's amazing. And so I'm going to just ask you a couple more questions here, and then we've, we're on for quite a bit of time, and I apologize for taking so much of your time, but this has just been a fantastic interview, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. But... Um, you know, we, we touched on a little bit about fear. We didn't really touch on anger as much, but my suspicion, having heard, heard what you're doing now and you're taking this active role, imagining Pac-Man, doing the journaling and things, is that the fear of pain must be significantly less than it was before as well. Very much so. But I, I will say that I find myself still programming my movements as though I was still in chronic pain <laughs> uh, because when you do live with it for a long time, you not only consciously but unconsciously develop a, a, a way of navigating those uh, turbulent waters of, of pain and uh, by making behavioral adjustments. And, uh, and uh, I did that. I did that. I mean, I learned, just uh, as an example, do I, when I get to the car door, do I uh, open the door, and then do I sit into the seat or do I try to step into the seat? And, uh, and in, uh, you know, if I shake someone's hand, I have to be careful they don't draw my arm toward them because that pulls my back. And uh, so you find yourself changing your handshake and things like that. So 
so uh, yes, and it takes a while for for that fear to go away and for you to start to relax. My whole gait is different. I'm standing straighter now than I was. Um, I'm just actually a different person than I was four months ago altogether. Well, I, I got to say, it, I am so glad that you could come on the show. I really appreciate the time that you spent with us. Um, I, you know, this is getting a little, we're almost to the hour mark, which is just absolutely remarkable to me. So maybe we'll get a chance to have you back on it. And, but if you, do you have a way that any listeners can get, I mean, if, if listeners could get in contact with you, would be willing to talk to anybody or. Uh, sure. Through, um, they can go on, um, Owens hyphen foundation.org and, uh, they can get in touch with it through my website. Fantastic. And we'll put those links in this in the show notes there. Any any last words here, David, for the audience or uh, or last profound statements? <laughs> well, I I think um, I think I've pretty much said it all, but uh, the trick is somehow to stay positive and open to possibilities for recovering uh, when you're in blinding pain and um, and to be active in trying to make those opportunities uh, develop for you. And it's just as if I had never scheduled, for example, a second opinion uh, and met Dr. David Hanscom and you, Kevin, I would still be in the same, I would be a victim of the blue plate special. <laughs> like a piece of smoked salmon filet. So, so, uh, and I think too, it does help to keep a sense of humor if you can. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank I you. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for having me on. No, I, I did too. I think every, you know, everybody out there, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. If you have questions, you can always let me know. We'll put the links to, uh, Mark's website here and, uh, until next time, everybody stay well.